0: that but we have another lovely child in our church Elsie Rafferty came last week I think Thursday I forget and as you think about it something that that's really important to me and I think a stewardship that God has placed into our laps is that we're an incubator for children you know those of you who started with us years ago, we had no kids. And f- we've busted out, we've, we kicked the pastor out of his office and made it into a nursery, busted a wall out to make it a bigger nursery. We got rid of the men's room, the nice one, and made it into a kid's bathroom. And the downstairs is all kids' activities. And if you look around at all these future leaders God has given us a sacred responsibility to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and I'm thankful that we have people that are stepping up to do that. And just keep praying for the kids. Um, we're this is an incredible, unique church in that regard, and uh, I'm just I'm thankful for that. We also, along that same lines, are having a baby dedication come up. So see Pastor Wayne for the details. Some of you already know, uh, but if you have a baby that needs to be dedicated, not baptized, but dedicated, see our pastor. Ladies, we have a Bible study. There's books downstairs and in the back, but they're meeting in Gail's apartment, number three. On Monday evenings, it is not Andy's house. Uh, It was made abundantly clear to me when I came in an hour after the end time, and they said, no boys allowed, girls only. Um, But it's a sweet time to see sisters get together around the word of God. So you're invited to that. See my wife in the back if you need more details. Catherine Layton is leading it. You don't have much time to see Isaac White for the details about the true church conference. Two last announcements. We have little sheets in the back there for kids, not adults, to give you some guidance to pay attention in the sermon. Um, and they're in the back table there. And we have a free book table downstairs with a lot of books. Um, there's uh, a couple of new editions from that great Puritan writer, Robert McCloskey, uh, dealing with Homer Price's adventures. But there's another um, really interesting publication of Hillsdale College. Some of you get this in premise, where the president, Larry Arne, has a commentary. I commend this to you to read. You may not agree totally. Um, I am apolitical, but I like. The crispness of his mind and he challenges me with contemporary events little housekeeping we have a tithe and offering box in the back we, we don't pass the plate anymore since covid two or three years ago now it's, it's a blur the restrooms are downstairs and ladies i have a plumber coming on tuesday If the ladies' room doesn't work, if it doesn't work, I've got a sign put up, and we just have to go down the hall to the newly expanded, renovated restroom that's in the nursery.
1: Well, thank you, Andy. If you look in your bulletin here and your worship folders may begin, we're going to have communion with Christ in just a bit, And I'll go ahead and explain how that works here. We do have open communion, so if you are in fellowship with Christ, you may uh, participate in communion with us. Um, You don't have to be a member of this church, but you do need to be a member of the body of Christ and obedient to him. We'll give you a moment here to pray, confess your sin, and prepare for Holy Communion with Christ privately right where you're at, and how we'll do it, we'll, uh, just because it's easier for me, we'll start on this side, you'll come and get both elements, and I'll repeat this again, but you'll get both elements when that time is, and then circle around and return back to your seat to where everyone is served with both elements, and then we'll wait for one another as scripture calls us to do, and then we'll receive them together. We'll do that in just a bit. Our scripture meditation for this month comes from Psalm 103. We'll be working on that throughout the course of this month, and I would encourage you to consider (coughs) um, participating with us, at least reading it, meditating on it, and perhaps even memorizing it. I'll read this first section for us, and then you go ahead and privately pray as I Conclude here in verse 7 of 103 today, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let me read the text from 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases Father, we indeed come together as your people to bless your holy name. We praise you that indeed you will forgive us of all our iniquity. If we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray for anyone that feels the weight and burden and guilt of actions, attitudes, and affections that are less than worthy of you that they would also recognize that indeed you will forgive all. And may from the heart we truly confess, and from the heart truly receive, receive the forgiveness that is in Christ our Lord. As we commune with Christ and do this in remembrance of him, I pray indeed, Father, that we will truly be able to commune with Christ, to be reminded of this great truth of the forgiveness that is in Christ our Lord. I pray for your people, regardless of whatever circumstances they might find themselves in. I pray they would find a greater degree of joy and peace and hope because of the love of God manifested to them, literally poured out into their hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. If anybody is away from Christ at this moment, I pray that you would draw them near and find satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone. Bless our time together as we sing out praises to your holy name, as we hear your word proclaimed, as we sing your word and receive communion and fellowship with Christ and one another. May truly your name be blessed this day. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as Blake comes to lead us. We'll focus on Christ our Savior, and then we'll be seated to receive this communion. Christ my Savior, first of all, hymn 602 in your hymn book.
0: Work has ended, and
2: I've crossed the swelling tide when bright and morning.
1: I want to read a text for you here from the Gospel of Matthew. And here it is that Christ took the Passover and transformed it into what we will receive now what we call Holy Communion with Christ. So as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, it broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of you, all of it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Passover commemorated God's deliverance of the people. It pointed to a spiritual reality that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They would have four cups. And, And the first one, and you can find... Some of this associated with Exodus 6. The first one commemorated the idea of bringing them out. The second one of delivering. The third one of redemption. It was called the cup of blessing. And the fourth and final one was when uh, he would take them to their own. When Christ holds up this cup, it's the cup of blessing which we'll commemorate today. It is the cup of redemption in which Christ has finished and accomplished it all. There awaits yet one more cup to be realized. It's the cup that he talks about here. I won't drink it again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It is a cup to look forward to Christ coming to take his own, to be with him in the kingdom. This is what we're commemorating, and this is what we are remembering. Let me pray a blessing indeed and then I'll call each one up to receive and then to return back to your seat and then we'll take this together. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these elements which remind us of this truth that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, has truly redeemed us from our sin. And so as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we we'll do so in remembrance of Christ and proclaim forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But also look forward to that great and glorious day in which we will literally receive this final cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and dismiss this side of you. you'll receive both elements and then return. Elements that we have here we have the fruit of the vine cup, we have the bread. Bread represents Christ's body, perfect life lived, a complete fulfillment of all righteousness, and God has promised to impute that righteousness of Christ to all who will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to repent and believe we will not be saved by the works of our righteousness, accomplishment, anything we can do, even receiving and worshiping of Christ, but it is simply God's grace and mercy granted to us in Him. Receive this in remembrance of Christ's righteousness. I think it is a special blessing indeed to be reminded of this cup of blessing, this redemption that is in Christ our Lord. Because after all, our merit before Him would be His perfect righteousness. But what about our demerit? What would wash away those sins, what truly could do that, is none other than the blood of Christ. And we've been learning through the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ said those specific words that I love to hear. It is finished. In Christ, there is no condemnation because Jesus. And remember again. Our tradition, then, now, the
2: Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand I'm faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane that You may be seated.
3: Good morning, church. The scripture reading today is from Psalm 92. Psalm 92, which you will find on page 498 of your Pew Bible. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of mine enemies. My, ear, my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, there is no unrighteousness in him. Let us pray. Father, we have gathered here to give thanks to you and to sing praises to your name. For truly, you have made us glad by your work, the work of creation, bringing into being the heavens and the earth, this world which you have made and called very good and your work of salvation for choosing a people to give to your Son, our Lord and Redeemer. We thank you for the assurance that as surely as we expect your mercy and favor, that just as surely justice will be done. Though the wicked who hate you may seem to flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. And Father, we thank you for your holy word, which reassures us and encourages us that you will care for us and refresh us with good with good things in this life which we can enjoy with thanksgiving through jesus our lord and father we gladly return a portion of the provision to us in today's offering and we ask that you would use it powerfully to advance your kingdom in our church our community and throughout the world in jesus name we pray amen Amen.
1: in church. It's a joy to sing the psalms, isn't it? And uh, that tune worked well with that one, didn't it? So, very good. Those who are, <laughs> are filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit will sing out in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's good to sing the psalms. This morning I'd like to invite you to return to the Gospel of John, and we'll pick up in this second vignette, if you will, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, beginning at verse 11 in John chapter 20. John 20, and we'll look at verse 11 through 18. And I don't know how this will unfold exactly today. We'll see. But ultimately, we're going to demonstrate here in this narrative the love of Christ, which endures to the very end and will endure beyond whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. This narrative here in chapter 20 of John provides some details of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, we laughed off last time when we were here, we We looked at the discovery of the empty tomb, primarily by Peter and John. It was early Sunday morning. Some women come. They they find the stone rolled away. They dispatch Mary Magdalene, that's verse 1, to go tell the disciples, which she does. Peter and John return. They find the tomb empty. And they also discover some artifacts in it. It's really impossible to discover those grave clothes intact as they do. Tightly bound around Jesus' body with over 75 pounds of spices, That yet there they lay undisturbed. A face cloth that was on Christ's face, is neatly folded and set aside. These things are written as we are reminded that indeed they would believe. These things are written, I might remind you that you would believe as well. It is for your faith in Christ. If you notice verse 8, the other disciple that would be John the writer of this narrative he would reach the tomb first he also went in he let peter go in first he waited for the older guy which that was good but john says he goes in in verse 8 he says he saw and believed and then this Parenthetical phrase, for as yet, verse 9, they didn't understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And that's what's key, is the Scripture. That very work that you have is better than an artifact of cloth. You have the Holy Scriptures. And that's what it's pointing to. They didn't fully understand it. The Scriptures had declared that this would occur. Christ has said it, but yet they had not come to fully understand understand. But they did believe. They did believe that Christ had risen. The scriptures will be instrumental in bringing about faith then and now. We don't look to and worship artifacts. In, man, in mankind's natural state, he's said to be dead in sin, blind And deaf, deaf to the wisdom of God, blind to his righteousness. How is he going to see? How is he going to hear? And how will he respond? Even to the factual evidence that's put right there. It will will require a miracle of God's grace. It's called regeneration. It's a spiritual dynamic by which you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are first born from above. That's a process where God awakens the sinner from the dead to life. And the evidence is belief or faith. Faith is the response of that newness of life. John and Peter are demonstrating their faith, although it's weak in many respects, but but yet in, in verse 10, if you note here, and I'm just reviewing, they return home. I'm not suggesting they have it all figured out, but John finishes that first section by concluding that they just go home. They're not panicked. They're not running around. the The body is gone. These Artifacts are are, are still remaining. They're not scooping them up or anything. They just return home. It's dawning on them of what's going on. They are not terribly distraught, although they have every reason to be. They simply go home. But we have a different response here in verse 11. With Mary Magdalene. She was introduced at the very beginning in verse 1, and now John picks this back up in a different vignette, if you will, in verse 11. Peter and John have left the scene, they've gone home. Mary is alone, she's alone at the tomb, and she's very distraught understandably so she had been a disciple a follower of Christ she's not one of the 12 in that inner circle but she still was closely related and like the other women who came they were true followers of Jesus Christ but now at this event here picked up at verse 11 all hope is gone her faith is waning Jesus has died, a horrible death. She's witnessed it. She wanted to honor at the very least his memory by properly preparing the body. It was done so hurriedly, and wanted to have further preparations done. But, but now that, that's gone. The body's gone. It's, it's not there. So, she comes to this realization, all is lost in that sense. you feel the emotion of it? And her natural response, like yours would be, was just to weep uncontrollably. It's a natural response to this event and all that has come, and now even the body is gone. So, verse 11 picks up that way. Let's read. Mary stood... Weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing it be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I pray for your people that we would see the Lord in the fullness of his glory to the degree it can be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in your word. I pray that our love for Christ would grow and that we would respond with great faith, great hope, and great joy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a narrative, and so what I think will be helpful for us is to go through and explain a few of the points of this anecdote that's given here, and then we'll make some applications along the way, but I do want to drive at one main application that I said at the outset, and that I think this one of the applications of this narrative is that it demonstrates a genuine love for Christ that has been granted to Mary, as she displays that in her responses here. Notice here, it says in verse 11 that it is Mary who is weeping, and and that would cause us first to think, well, who is this person Mary? Mary would be a common name. It's mentioned a lot in Scripture. It comes from Miriam, Moses' sister. It was a very common name, and so often to then Uh, point a particular person out to distinguish them, they might add another description. And here it is, she is Mary Magdalene or Mary from Magdala, a little small uh, fishing village in Galilee, north of Jerusalem. Luke provides for us some greater details of her and her relationship. If you want to turn there, I'll read it for you in Luke chapter 8, and then uh, we'll jump over in just a bit to Luke 24, so you may want to get there and keep your finger here in John. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 8, in Jesus' ministry, Luke is describing, he says, soon afterward he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. These are his close disciples that we know who eventually became the apostles. And but also verse 2, <coughs> and some also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had gone out. There was a number of women there, but here Mary of Magdala is pointed out because she's going to be pointed out again. As John points out, she is the first to see the risen Lord, his actual body. Now, by the way, just as an aside here, Mary Magdalene is often confused with the prostitute mentioned in the previous chapter in Luke, but the Bible doesn't make that connection. Notice here in chapter 8, it specifically talks about this Mary who is different, and she's associated what? With demons, demons that have gone out of her. So, she isn't this prostitute mentioned before, but she is a lady who was demon-possessed. We're not sure of how that was manifested in her maladies. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll find out There were numbers of people who were demon-possessed, and it is manifested in different ways. When Jesus walked the earth, the demons knew, or at least they thought, that judgment was at hand, right, because they saw Christ. And so, here you have a lot of um, expression of it and talk about it. Demons, for the most part, are covert. They're unknown. There may be many people that you have even encountered, I'd argue, that may very well be demon-possessed, but you don't know it. It may be manifested in their cruelty, in their wickedness, in various vices, whatever the case might be, but they're going to act behind the scenes. Here, this woman is said to be rescued from Many We're not sure what that torment that she had and what that oppression, um, how it was manifested in her life, but we know one thing. She was delivered by Jesus Christ. She became a true follower of Christ, and she traveled with Him and with the other disciples hearing what? The gospel and the preaching of the kingdom of God. Well, now... Everything has changed, right? She, she was delivered. She heard Christ's teaching a promise of this great kingdom. Now put yourself in her shoes and her experience as well as essentially all the disciples who followed Christ. We're on this side of history, if you will. We're, we're not right there in the midst and you have to give them some credit for where they're at. They're not sure how things are going to work out. The Gospels aren't written yet, right? They hear some teaching. They hear some preaching. And these are the ones that are going to preach and teach Christ's Word. And yet they don't quite, in reality, know how all is going to work out. The mood here, not just with Mary, but with all of those that followed Christ, all hope is lost. Their faith, what little they had, is nearly gone. I invited you to turn to Luke so you can jump over to the 24th chapter. This is after the resurrection of Christ. And Luke records an interesting story about some folks that were on, their, on a road to a village named Emmaus. In verse 13 of chapter 24, I think it illustrates really the the mood of all the disciples here as they were going about that very day, they were 7 miles from Jerusalem, so they're not that far, and they were talking with each other, verse 14, about the things that had happened. What well, all of them, why they were talking and discussing Together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus is resurrected. This is one of his resurrection appearances. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking and sad. That's their mood, see, sad. And then one of them named Clopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and, and all the people and, and how our chief priests and rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Their hopes had been dashed, right? I mean, think about their circumstance. They're sad. They heard the teaching and preaching. They saw how mighty he was. They saw the miracles that he did. And yet, how did these evil men triumph? They put him to death. And then they continue on. Yes, and and besides all of this, it's now the third day since things happened. <laughs> and now we're smiling because we know what has happened, but they don't. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They they were at the tomb early in the morning and, and when they died. Did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen vision of angels that, who said he was alive. Some of us, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him, they didn't see. Here's Jesus' response, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Where is this faith and truth going to come from? It is, is not going to be seeing these artifacts. It is going to be listening to the very word of God. In fact, all of this was told ahead of time. If they just would have read it and believed it, that's his point. He says, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ, this would be the Messiah, this is Jesus, the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And so in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. That would be a great Bible study to go to, wouldn't it? You know what? You can pick it up and read that same story. You have it right before you. The question is just believe the Scripture. All hope, all faith was lost, not just with Mary, but with all of them. That was the mood. It, it was as if everything was gone, in a sense, if you will. And now they can't even find the body of Christ. But He was there all the time in His Holy Word. And you can encounter Him as well in the Holy Scriptures. Back to our text, Mary's condition is that way. She is is weeping. She has no hope. She's got no faith. She's been startled by the circumstances that exist, but God is gracious to her. And verse 12 of our text She peers into this tomb, hopeless, weeping, and then she sees this scene. Here's two angels sitting in white, if you will. They're glorious. It's a way to describe the purity and the beauty of them. But they're sitting there where Christ's body had been laid. It was like a little shelf inside this tomb, one at the head, and one at the feet, now, if you're a Jew and you see the image of a little ledge and an angel at one end and an angel at one end, I won't be too dogmatic about it, but I think one of the first things that come to their mind, which also comes to my mind, is the holiest place of all that they would have known. Their Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant existed. And you remember how that Ark was told to be fashioned? It would have an angel at either end. Inside that Ark of the Covenant was God's Word. The people had disobeyed God's Word, and so the priest would come in once a year to sprinkle blood on the seat of that table. We call it the mercy seat because God sees the blood and he would pass over them, but this had to be done year after year after year because the blood of bulls and goats don't actually atone for sin. But as we read before, Christ on the cross, he said what? It is finished. All of it is finished. And do you remember what the other gospel writers say about when Christ said it's finished? There was... A a veil that was torn, remember? Not from the bottom up, but from the top down. A veil that enclosed that very image in the holiest place because it is finished. And here, this image again before her weeping eyes, that very word of truth showing that it is finished, it's done. And in fact, this body is gone. Mercy is yours in Christ. He is risen from the grave. It is accomplished. Verse 13, they simply then, whether she gets this imagery or not, or whether you do or not, they turn to her and they ask a simple question, why are you weeping? Now, they know why she's weeping. She's asking her to, they're, they're asking her to ask herself, why are you weeping? Well, she says, well, they've taken my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. But that's really not why she's weeping. She's weeping because of her lack of faith, her lack of hope. Something's hanging on to it because she's still looking for Christ. But it is a good question in that state of despair for her or for you, for that matter. As the psalmist would say, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within? Hope in God, right? The circumstances, they don't seem to be lined up. These folks on the Emmaus Road, they... They explained it very carefully how everything was falling apart. I think this is what Mary is experiencing here. And the question she should ask in that circumstance is why are you weeping? She doesn't fully believe the scriptures. She hasn't embraced them. From her perspective, she thinks, well, somebody must have just carted off the body. That's the first thing that comes to her mind. She's confused. It's easy to criticize her for a lack of faith. But as I thought more through this, I think it's a good reminder that various moments of crisis as in our own life. We might have a lack of faith, too, and might need to ask yourself, well, why are we cast down? Why are we weeping? Do we not believe the scriptures that we know that for those that love God, all things, every circumstance, every situation work together for good? For those that are called according to his purpose, that God has a purpose in all things, We empathize with the weeping, we understand, but we call for faith and hope in God as revealed in His holy word. But the scene here in verse 14 has this beautiful and wonderful twist, doesn't it? She says this, she's looking for the body. And Jesus is there all the time. <laughs> She's looking for Jesus, and he's there. She doesn't know it, it says. So, Jesus talks to her. Well, there's been speculation as to why she didn't know, including the, the guys on the road to Emmaus. It said that they were withheld. I do think there is a sense in which Jesus doesn't quite look the same in his glorified state as he did prior. I'll, I'll grant that. She may have been so distraught she's not even focusing on even seeing the connection and the resemblance It's there, certainly not expecting him to be risen after she saw what happened to him. And and we can't uh, minimize that. Jesus was beat to a bloody pulp within an inch of his life. And here you're, she's seeing somebody that Is strong and whole not somebody just stumbling by in fact she thinks that he's a gardener somebody strong and working and a caretaker if you will but notice he asks her the same question as the angels did doesn't he verse 15 why are you weeping and I think that's a good question for us to ask from time to time it's not a Criticism, we understand there will be times of mourning and weeping, but then you have to preach to yourself. Why are you weeping? She wants this body, she's so focused on that, and she wants to know, oh, well, maybe you took him and laid him somewhere else. You're cleaning house or doing something. She says, I think is kind of funny. She says, "Tell me where you laid him, and I'll take him away." It just demonstrates how much she loved Christ. That here is a woman that makes this statement that she's going to go get him and bring him back. She couldn't carry him. What's she going to do? How's she going to get him back? Her tears of sorrow now turn to joy with a single word, verse 16. He hears Jesus just simply say, he's talked to her already, but specifically he does this on purpose. Because of his divine revelation, he just says, Mary. And at that moment, look at the text, she turns and and she has to respond in her natural tongue. In Aramaic. Rabboni. I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching to his disciples in John chapter 10. Remember that? The Good Shepherd passage. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus affirms his personal relationship with all those who are his, and all of those who are his know it. More than that, Jesus knows their name. I have a hard time with names from time to time. I might know the face and the person, then I have to think for a minute, oh, yeah, what's that guys? Oh, yeah, because I've got a lot of names running around in my head. And uh, not as much gray matter as I'd like. But Jesus knows not just her name, but all of his sheep. It isn't just that he knows about them. He has a personal relationship with each one. The, the greatest and deepest relationship than you can ever Imagine. He doesn't just know what people call you or what he calls you. He knows all about you. In fact, he knows better about you yourself than you do. He is indeed God. She responds to the voice of Jesus in this actual case here as he reveals to her who he is in that simple word by calling her name. It's a divine act of revelation. does Jesus call my name? Yes. Oh, don't listen for it audibly. He's not physically here. But through the Holy Spirit, He will indeed speak to you as well. Not encountered literally like this, but through His very Word. That's the dynamic that is used. The Holy Spirit will speak to you through the word of Christ. I'll read this passage. You can stay because we'll be right back. The Apostle Peter talking about the revelation that is found in God's word. He talks about his own experiences. Could you imagine the experiences that Peter had? He says in 2 Peter 1, 18, he says, I heard that very voice, that is God's voice, born from heaven when we were on the holy mountain, that is the transfiguration of Christ, when he gave them a glimpse of glory. I always think of it like a Superman-type deal. You just pull out just a little bit, and what you see is this glorious light. We saw him on this mountain, We heard the voice of God, but we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. Okay, what would be better than hearing the very voice of God from heaven right now at this moment? Here's what you don't believe, and I have a hard time believing. (laughs) Okay, I don't believe it either, but it's what the Scriptures say, so then I must believe it, right? We would think that if Jesus walked in the room and we heard him say your name, this would be better. It isn't better. That's what Peter is saying. He says, we have something more confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention to, like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. How did it come? It was Produced by it not by the will of man, but by God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is blasphemy to run around and say, Jesus told me something and, you know, and I've got to tell you what it is. Or I heard some audible voice from heaven. Guess what? I have something a lot better and it's right here and you can go back and look at it every single day, 24-7. You can even memorize it. No wonder Satan would want to pull you away from this very truth so you wouldn't actually hear what God had to say. He has said much, and it is better right here. And he will encounter you. You will hear your name. You will hear this truth from his holy word. And it's better than what Mary even had. Back to our text in verse 17. Notice her response when she hears the voice of, of Christ, he, she begins to just hang on to him. I think the imagery there is she falls down, grabs his feet, and begins to worship him and will never let him go, right? I mean, she, she, she has been in such turmoil, such a great state of distress, which would be hard for us to imagine, all that she has witnessed, and now she finds him, she's never going to let him go. But Jesus has to tell her, stop clinging to me. He's got to go. Why has he got to go? Well, it's better. And he said he was going to go. That's what God's word says. Clinging is a good translation. But she's already, Jesus has already taught the disciples, that it's actually better that he goes. And and again, this is hard for me to understand. We think it would be better if Jesus would just show up physically, right? But it's actually better. I'll prove it to you. If you're in John, I think that's where I left you off. You can go back a couple chapters to chapter 16. Jesus is teaching his disciples in, in the upper room from 14 on. And then he talks about him going away, and verse 7 of chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better. That's what I'm saying. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. This is helper in a capital H. It is another of the exact same kind. It is the very Holy Spirit. If I go, I'm going to send him to you. What's so great about the Holy Spirit? He will dwell within the believer. This is better than a physical Christ who can only be at one place at one time physically. Here is spiritually, he will dwell indeed with you. It's better because Jesus said, I will, earlier in the text, he says, I will not leave you or forsake you. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to leave you like an orphan without someone there. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. He will come and lead you then into all truth. It's better. So, he says, don't hang on to me in this form or fashion. Instead, he's going to give Mary a charge, and you'll find that back in verse 18. Her response then in obedience to Christ is to proclaim the good news, and what does she simply say? "I have seen the Lord." <laughs> Christos the Nesting, Alephos the Nesting. He has truly risen, and he tells them all the things that Christ had told her. This response encountering Jesus is one of great joy. It naturally calls her to cry out in great exuberance. And by the way, I don't have time to look at it in detail. You can see how she was received when she went back. The the guys on the road to Emmaus kind of tipped us off a little bit. And Luke provides even more information in chapter 24 And verse 10, when he says, Mary Magdalene and the other women came back and told these things to the disciples, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. (laughs) So don't get too discouraged when you find Christ. It changes everything. You go from great depression if you will to great joy and then you have to tell somebody about it because this is what we do when we find something great and exciting and you tell them about it and you expect them to respond in great joy and they're like huh wonder what else is on tv (laughs) you know they 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 don't hear it even the disciples they, they weren't all that excited about it these were true believers But they were skeptical. It seemed like an idle tale. They had to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord themselves. Don't allow that response necessarily to dampen your great joy in hearing from Christ in his word and sharing it with others. Although at times it may go over like a lead balloon. Be expected of that. Well, let me finish up. I have a minute or two to finish up with um, some that I think is good application of what's going on, really explaining her circumstance and really the rest of the disciples who did ultimately endure. They they may have been in great times of hardship and doubt. They even rejected some of this truth that was given to them. They were Depressed, discouraged, hiding out, and yet somehow they keep hanging on. What is it that kept them hanging on? What is it with Mary in particular, as we've noted her, that caused her, against all odds, when she knew all hope was lost, when she actually witnessed that the body itself was gone? Why, why is she continually asking? For the body. Even if in her mind. He didn't rise from the dead. I would say it is love. It is a genuine love. For God. That is not brought out. By some sort of obligation. But a supernatural response. Of love that. Well you just can't quantify it. It is. The love of God poured out into her heart that compels her to go on. And even if the world as it is imagined is falling apart, it is her love for Christ that compels her to go on. We'll get to it in short order in a few weeks, but most of us are familiar with the next chapter. Chapter after Peter's failure to really believe and trust Christ, right, he denies Christ three times and is really discouraged about it. In fact, I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, can I ever do anything for God? (laughs) We know the rest of the story, but he didn't. And so, in chapter 21, you can turn there if you want to. I'll just read it for you. But I want to highlight three things here in chapter 21, they They're eating breakfast. In verse 15, Jesus then looks to Peter straight in the eye and he asks, what question does he ask him? Does he ask him, you got faith, you have hope, you have courage, you have conviction? He just asks him real simple this. Do you love me? He responds. Jesus charges him. And then he brings it up again. Verse 16. Do you love me? He responds. He tells him what to do. And it should be done. But he says to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter's response now, he's just grieved because he, he asks him. But he says, no, you know that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. In the midst of his denial, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of all that's going on, he knew one thing. He knew that the Lord knows that he loved him because he loved the Lord. And this is a critical question when all hope is gone, when you're at the end, if you will. Whatever life circumstances might find you in, the real question is, is there a love of God in your heart? Because that is what will endure. Endure. And I have two passages that I'd like to demonstrate that from, and I'll finish with this. But I think it's helpful to look at them, so I'm going to encourage you to consider doing so. The first is in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Paul has given us great theology to the church. And this is foundational to this idea of love, where it comes from. Notice chapter 5 in Romans. Paul says, he's going through this theologically, we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. God has declared those that are in Christ righteous. That's this justification. And so that brings about peace with God. Prior, we were in hostility, now we're peace. And how does that come? It comes only one way, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, notice the condition, the righteous, there's joy and there's hope in Christ. But in the world, there's not a lot of hope and joy often. And he addresses that in the next verse. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the phrase I want you to grab. Verse 5, God's love for those that are justified in Christ You have God's love. Think of it as it's pouring into you, into your hearts. How? Dynamically through the Holy Spirit. When sinners are regenerated, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is the better that Christ talked about. It is as though God is pouring... His love in them, not a superficial love, but a supernatural love, a love that will change the disposition and the affections of the heart so that when all hope is gone, when all faith is gone, there will be one thing that remains there will be one thing that endures, and that is the love of God poured out in the life of the Christian. This love will remain like a three-strand cord of the, un, of the triune God, which is absolutely unbreakable. There will be times in which you will lose hope. There will be times in which you will lose faith. But there will never be a time in which you will lose the love of God in Christ Jesus for the believer. Now, one more passage, and I'll sew this up. Because I want you to see the connection. If you're thinking about love, you know a section that deals with it quite a bit is 1 Corinthians 13, right? So, let's go there. Besides explaining what love is, and it demonstrates some characteristics and some aspects of it kindness, patience, mercy but I want you to drop down to verse 7. Because it describes what this love then does. And I'm talking specifically not love in general, but the love of God in Christ Jesus that has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, that's demonstrated by these disciples who do come to great courage and great conviction. Here's the description of this kind of love. Verse 7 it bears all things, it believes all things. It hopes all things and it endures all things. That is, it. it, There is a burden to bear, a belief, a faith, hope in the future, and enduring all. Notice this, and this is also. This is tied into verse eight, but it really concludes the section here grammatically. It and, and it provides a transition into the next phrase, but it says simply this, love never ends. That's my point. It is the love of God that will enable you to bear, believe, hope, and endure. There will be times in which these things seem to fall away or they're very weak, but it is the love of God that never ends, that is poured out into the heart to the believer. Drop down to verse 13. Paul quantifies it this way. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? It is love. It is love that will bring about the faith, the hope, and the enduring, abiding, and bearing In our narrative here, Mary's faith and hope were stretched to the limit. They were nearly gone. But her love demonstrated her devotion and endured the stress of these events. And, beloved, I would tell you when all hope is gone, you can cling to one thing, and that is the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love that you then would have for Christ will endure, and certainly his love for you will never fail. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us through your word to really know the truth, to know the scriptures. May the love of Christ endure in our heart to the end to grant us the strength to believe and to hope with great joy. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, take a moment now, respond to Christ directly the way he has spoken to you this Lord's Day. Take a moment now. great love manifested to us. Verses 1 and 3. Let's sing this together as we close. Sing it out.
0: Can utter mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteous at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Amen and amen.
3: You are dismissed.